welcome to the Theology Podcast. This is C.R. Wiley, and today we've got a special treat in a number of ways. One is uh, we're not actually at the Corner Pug in West Hartford, Connecticut. We're at uh, Modern A Pizza, one of the world's premier pizzerias. If you ever see those lists on MSN or any other of those you know, food ranking sites, and the subject is pizza, uh, you'll see that there are New Haven uh, based pizzerias that are like at the top of the list. And of those pizzerias, it's uh, Modern A Pizza that's uh, generally at the top. I think I've seen about two or three times that Modern A Pizza is like number one in the country. And we had some pizza today along with some- Very good. Yeah, it was like <laughs> with our, our regular libations. <laughs> but anyway, so here we are. We're just down the street from, from Yale. And if uh, at some point in the show you hear that we're being arrested, uh, for speaking incorrectly and talking about politically incorrect topics, uh, you'll know why. We're just right down the street. We may, we're actually in, in, in hearing distance of Yale Divinity School. But anyway, so here we are. And today we are joined by, by a special friend and guest of the show. But before uh, I talk about him, I'm, I'm going to just stop talking because I want him to introduce himself in a minute. But why don't we start with you, Glenn? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of European history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and I do a few other things too. All right. I'm Tom Price, a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, teaching both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. All right. And I'm C.R. Wiley, the, past, the senior pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester and the author of the Household and the War for the Cosmos, and our special guest of the day is Aaron Wren. Hello there, I'm Aaron Wren, and uh, I'm a writer on cities and urban policy, and uh, really focus on the Rust Belt of the United States, uh, but also a Presbyterian Reformed uh, Christian who has written a lot on men's issues. Yeah. I uh, had a newsletter uh, called The Masculinist, uh, about the uh, uh, intersection of Christianity and, and masculinity. I like to think of it as the uh, Christian, call it the Christian response to Jordan Peterson, or the, yeah, the Christian right. the Christian antidote, the Christian <laughs> antidote to the alt-right, yeah, as, right, I like to, right, as I like right. to call it. That's, that's good. And, um, uh, you, you know, I, I, I stopped publishing it a couple months ago, but I, I may restart. So if anyone hears this and wants to subscribe, you can. Just go to AaronRen.com slash masculinist, A-A-R-O-N-R-E-N-N.com slash masculinist. You can sign up. And, uh, uh, but yes. That's great stuff. Of course, that's how you and I got to know each other. I remember learning about the ma learning about you through the masculinist. I think probably because of Rod Dreher's sort of uh, shout out to you in one of his yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. posts. Yeah. I just was talking on the phone with a, a pastor out in Orange County, California. Uh, I'm speaking at their church's retreat this year, and he was saying when he was a pastor in Phoenix, he gave a sermon on, on men, and somebody in his congregation walked up to him and said, you sound an awful lot like Aaron Wren. <laughs> and so, was, that, was that considered a good thing or not? I think, I think it was a good thing. So, uh, yeah, I know that, the, I know that uh, it had, you know, we, we've had quite a lot of people who signed up for that list, and Rod Rear, um, who I'm a regular reader of, yeah, yeah. Um, was, was instrumental. And uh, one of the things I really admire about Rod is his willingness to signal boost people. Yeah. Uh, even people that, uh, you know, he may not think of as like, you know, he writes around, like, for example, he'll write about his friend David Brooks. Yeah. David's already a famous guy. He'll write about guys like that, but he'll also write about people who aren't famous. Yep, yep. And uh, he, he's probably responsible more than any 
other person for J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy, becoming a national yeah, bestseller. that's interesting, yeah, uh, I, I believe he, it. Uh, his interview with J.D. Vance crashed a server at the American wow. Conservative, wow, and wow. Uh, that was really before anybody else had done anything, and there was yeah. just a play yeah. uh, in New York called The Fourth Turning. <laughs> that he wrote passionately about and like sold the whole run out and like extended the run and so he's uh, you know he's really uh, willing to use his platform to boost other people and mm -hmm. I, I, so I find that a greatly admirable characteristic he's not just out there boosting himself or his yeah. buddies right. he sees someone else and he doesn't even have to agree with you on everything right. necessarily right. so I think that's great for him so I, I'm very thankful to Rod yeah I like Rod yeah. Anyway, uh, that's that's great to, to kind of get the introduction to you know what's become of the masculinist and uh, what may become of the masculinist. I'm, I've got high hopes. I've got high oh, hopes thanks. that you'll be able to get it off the ground again. Anyway, uh, since we've got Aaron here today, uh, and by the way, we've been talking for about an hour before we started to record this. <laughs> One of the things Aaron brought up was something I thought that would make a great subject for a show. So why don't you introduce the idea again, Aaron, right. and uh, we can kind of riff with it. Well, I've always said I think there are three things uh, that are really important to get right uh, in the church in America today. One is men's issues, which has really been my focus. Uh, the second one is the household, uh, kind of recovering the household, which is something that you've been very uh, good on. And, and the third one is sort of like how the church survives in what I call the negative world, a world in which it's considered a social negative, it may come yeah. with social cost, at a minimum social cost to be identified as a Christian, which is something I've also yeah. uh, spent some time worried about. And one of the things I think relates to all of those issues is how the world has changed um, in the last couple hundred years where we went from... Headway. We're, headway, we're, headway, yeah, headway. Yeah, we're ordering beers. By the way, our audience is, you don't need to worry, our audience is used to the waitress coming and asking <laughs> for what we want to drink. <laughs> Two headways, Brooklyn. Uh, a headway, how about that? Uh, That's yeah, what everybody else said. Yeah, yeah, okay. uh, but uh, essentially, what we had in the Bible was essentially a pre-industrial society. Right. You know, both Old and New Testaments. And that's what almost all human civilizations lived in, was essentially a pre-industrial society oriented around household production and many, many other things we would talk about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then we went to essentially a industrial society, an industrial society. And today we're essentially completing, in the process of transitioning to a post-industrial society. Right. And what I see is that today's divisions in the church, you know, call them kind of like more liberal versus conservative, however you look at it, is really between a conservative church on the one hand that is very rooted in the norms of industrial society. Yes. The 1950s was household to say, or the or Victorian norms, mm -hmm. uh, and a kind of a liberal contingent that's very much enamored of today's more all current post-industrial society. Mm -hmm. And although they go at each other's throat, I think it's interesting that both of them represent social models that are historical anomalies. That's right. That's and right, right, right. that we need to be thinking about, not that we need to have a return to a world in which 90% of people lived as, you know, household, you know, farmers, so so but this is, this is, right. but what does it really mean to, to, to live as a Christian, interpreting the Bible in light of the worlds that we live in today. And I think there's a lot that's being missed, a lot that's yeah. being missed. So like, I've got a number of friends in, in the Front Porch Republic crowd. I imagine you're familiar with that world. Yes. Kind of the Wendell Berryites. Yep, yep, yep. And uh, you know, there's, there's not, they're, they're a bright bunch, and I've got good friendships with a lot of them, people like Patrick Deneen and those guys. Yeah. Um, but the thing that sometimes, you know, is 
you know, weird about that world is, you know, Wendell, you know, refuses to own a computer. He has his wife type his manuscripts, and then they're set off to some place where they're put into a computer. <laughs> you know, and, and, and so he's, he's he remains he, pure. He remains that's right. <laughs> but that's his right. product. Right? That's right. That's right. And he plows with a mule. And the, and and, and, and I, I kind of get it. I kind of yeah. get it. I do believe that ideas often sort of bubble up from the f physical. This is where Marx is kind of onto something when he's talking about, you know, uh, ideologies as being things that emerge from social arrangements and that kind of thing. But uh, Marx understood the material causes right. of things in a way that the conservatives, whose the, the mentality of political and, and theological conservatives, I think, can best be summed up with, was it Richard Weaver's book, Ideas Have Consequences. Right. They basically view the structures of society as, as emerging from ideas. Mm -hmm. And I think that is an important component of it, but they missed the material cause. Marx was very unwell understood the material causes right. of things in a way that too many people lack. They think if they just have the right ideas, everything else flows from that, but that's yeah. not true. Yeah, and I think I think that's a good point. And I think Aristotle was onto that. I think when, it, when I think about Marx, I think of a, of a, of a guy who is an Aristotelian without uh, any telos that's transcendent or, or outside of history. You know, for him, it's just sort of like this Hegelian outworking of the dialectic within sort of material arrangements. Mm -hmm. But I think he understood the connection between ideas and material arrangements better than most of either of these groups that you just described, Aaron. So, uh, well, I mean, most of the front porch republic guys, uh, I think, are safely ensconced in modernist institutions. Yes, they're not. <laughs> uh, Wendell, right. Wendell Berry is. Uh, in a, in a, I have a lot of huge respect for Wendell Berry. <laughs> and it's uh, a, a good thing it was closed. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, but, but yeah, I, I have. I, you know, I, I have my my disagreements with the front porch republic crowd in right. a lot of ways. I mean, what right. I, what I. Actually, I have a little bit of a different point of view on them, right. which is I think that they... We're okay. It's just, it was close. They, they talk <laughs> a good game. I'm nervous. That's okay. Did you see okay. me standing here for that? That's it. You're, you're fine. We're going to be okay. If I could just get a little bit of water uh, to sort of water? get the stickiness off, that would be great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of them, um, they talk a good game of being anti-modernist, but they're actually quite comfortable yes. in this world. And they, uh, <laughs> I've been you know, in some of their homes. So and I, I, I was talking with, um, <laughs> I, I did some writing, and I read Patrick Deneen's book. He does this phenomenal indictment of modernism, and then his conclusion is basically we should never even attempt to do anything about it. Yes, that's, that is a, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a lot of people had that same observation. A lot of, and Patrick's a friend of mine, yeah. but, but a lot of people had that same observation. Great, thank you. I, I sort of see that as a we'll survive. a form of um, a form of delegitimizing dissent from the modern order. I see them yeah. as essentially de, de facto defenders of the modern order because they delegitimize anyone who would actually want to go about changing the modern order. And therefore, the idea is that you should sort of do these little neo Tocquevillian, yeah, have right. people over on your front porch for dinner, <laughs> right. and rebuild organic society from the bottom up, but without ever actually touching any of the structures of modern society. Well, that, yeah, and that, that's a great thing to sort of segue into some things that we were talking about earlier, you know, sort of like, you know, getting to a more, I think, uh, wise as serpent, innocent as doves approach to dealing with negative world. You, know, you, you talked about that, where now being a Christian has no social cachet. It doesn't get you any points. Right. In fact, it may actually cost you something mm -hmm. at work. It may cost you something in your community. It may cost you something 
you know, even in your church. But <laughs> actually, before we go there, right. uh, I, I want to give at least a little bit of pushback. Um, okay, good. Please do. And, um, you know, the you can take a look at the modern industrial world and fault it for a lot of different things. But it has done more in practical terms to alleviate poverty globally than anything else in history. Mm -hmm. um, it actually, industrialization grows out of, and the key word there is out, uh, of uh, a Christian outlook on you know, a profoundly biblical outlook coming out of Genesis of the role of humanity in society, that our job is to be productive, our job is to come to understand it, our job is to harness the things God has given us to, to, uh, to better the world. Uh, now, I'll grant you that industrialization ends up therefore being a Christian heresy, but in its roots, um, it comes from a profound understanding and the part of the early people who were involved in it, at least, of the cultural mandate. So there is a connection to historic Christianity. Like I said, I agree it's a heresy as it, as it emerges, but there is a connection to it. And you can't say that all of the results are negative, given, like I said, the, the track record it has on alleviating right. poverty and suffering. Yeah. Oh. I think, you know, when I talk about industrial industrial society, I talk about it as a society, and there are many, many components of that. I've talked about how it affected, um, you could, we could talk about it in terms of the economic organization of society. We go from essentially household-based production to factory-based production. We can talk of it in terms of how it affected governance of society, where we essentially went from a New England town meeting type environment to essentially large-scale bureaucratic governance. So there's, there's we, can, we can think about the role of women. We can think about it in terms of like how like policing and public services and education were delivered. There are many, many, many components of this. And I think that ultimately, it's sort of like the way people talk about globalization today. Don't you know that globalization has lifted a billion people out of dollar-a-day poverty? And it sort of becomes an all-or-nothing affair. And so yeah, what I yeah. don't what I don't want to suggest is that we go back to plowing with a mule. Mm -hmm. I think we need to take advantage of modern technologies, and I think that we need to um, look at modern forms of organization and the ability to to mobilize people at mass scale. But many of the things that came out of this, I don't think it's all necessarily a package. And I don't think it can be disassembled and we can just cherry pick an element here or there. But I do think there, you know, it didn't have to necessarily be this way. It's sort of like people think that the rust belting of America was sort of, an, you know, we transitioned. Inevitable, right? inevitable. Well, it wasn't. There are communities that did not rust. Um, like uh, we could think of uh, Columbus, Indiana, which, you know, really continued to thrive in part because of a Christian, um, local, local, the lar leading local businessman in town was a very devout uh, Christian. He was a mainline Disciples of Christ guy, J. Irwin Miller, and he heavily invested in many, many other things. So he just sort of, he sort of dragged his town kicking and screaming into the future. We can think about the same way as happened in Western Michigan and places like Holland and Grand Rapids that right, have been essentially right. local leadership. So I think there are, there are like ways that things could have been different. So what I don't want to do is roll back the clock because it's impossible 
I think we need to accept that we are here, and we need to look at what are good, what are good uses of technology, and what are bad. And I think if we look at maybe the front porch Republic crowd doesn't do this, but a lot of the critics of modernity and modern society did do that. Ivan Illich sure. talked about he had this idea of convivial tools. Mm-hmm. What are the kinds of tools that are that are the kinds of tools and technologies that are beneficial to society versus which ones that are harmful to society. Or Kirkpatrick Sale, I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce his name. Yeah, he, uh, he says, look, we don't want to get rid of technology. He was very big in what he called human scale. Yes. He's like, we're interested in human scale societies, but we're not interested in like destroying technologies. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do feel like we don't so, want to become, we don't want to become, a, a, we don't want to just say, oh yes, everything is bad, all factories are bad, all technology is bad. I, I don't want to imply that at all. I think we can look at there have been negative things. And I think we're just we're saying in a fallen world, uh, I, this is where I'm not a post-millennialist and where I have big, big, big differences with post-millennialism. I'm nothing, there's a nothing new under the sun, man. And I think all of our own attempts to essentially create perfection mm-hmm. in this world are going to fail. We have intrinsic flaws in ourselves and in this world. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be trade-offs and everything. Yeah. Uh, but I would like for us to be more opening to questioning the arrangements of modernity mm-hmm. than we are today mm-hmm. and say, what's good about this? What's bad about this? Right, yeah. right. And I think some of what we've been, we've done uh, a few episodes on technology in particular, and I think some of the things we've been doing is raising those kinds of questions, even the relationship of technology to the way we order our loves. And I think that's an important aspect of it, because one of the things we were talking about in one episode is the way that Heidegger's critique of technology, of course, is seeing it as very sinister in the way in which it enslaves us. We, be, we become actually an, enslaved to what we create to actually free us. We're gaining dominance over things. Right. And one of the one of the ways in which we were evaluating the the way in which we can we can make that balance between what's good for us or not as Christians is not just sort of utilitarian. <laughs> Um, but, but actually the way in which we, we are receiving the created order and the gifts thereof and technology is helping us not lose that, but actually enhance that. And I think that was one of the things, talk about the household or the rearrangement through, through technology, modernization, whatever you want to call it. Whatever gains came were those negatives we've talked about, and part of the problem with it is 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 we rapidly went along with those shifts and movements without actually right. considering the, the the proper ordering and, and and goods. I'd like to return to that that at some point uh, in, in maybe a few minutes, but I'd like to explore a little bit more this uh, this this. Uh, conflict that you outlined at the very beginning of the, of the, you know, when you introduced the subject, where you talked about sort of conservatism, as we understand it, mm-hmm. in theological circles, is actually a kind of 1950s kind of Victorian phenomenon, you know, sort of a conti- continuum between Victoria and, you know, uh, you know, the return after the you know, Second World War and sort of the heydays of the 50s, you know, that, that kind of that kind of uh, image of America, or you know, I should say image of, you know, the Christian life in the modern world. And then, you know, what we would probably describe today as woke culture or progressivism right. or, or whatever you want to call it. And both those things kind of reflecting economic orders. So when we think about, say, woke culture, uh, you know, we can kind of get lost in, you know, the, 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 the details of, you know, with regard to grievance and injustice and so forth. But what is it about the world that we live in today that makes 
it possible for us to point our fingers at our ancestors and say, I want nothing to do with you, when our immediate predecessors weren't willing or able to do that. There's something that's happened. It's not, I, I'm, I'm cynical. I don't think it's because we're that much smarter or <laughs> that much better. In fact, in some ways, I think we're far dumber and, and not as virtuous. Uh, but, but today, people are just more than happy to just tra you know, trash their ancestors, flush them down the toilet. What's happened? I, I think I've got some ideas, but I was wondering if you maybe had some thoughts on that. Right. Well, I'll, I think we all are sort of like, uh, as, as much as we like to think that we're uh, we're independent thinkers, we're all a product of our, our kind of autobiography, if you will. Right, so, right. so I'm gonna give you a very Generation X view of the world. Uh, as I was an early Gen Xer. And one, I think all of us tend to, uh, you know, we have sort of a culture of our, the culture that exists in our youth and then the culture that exists in sort of middle age. And, you know, so we're sort of like wrestling with those. One of the things I would say is I think that the baby boomers and the millennials have something in common, uh, which is that both of them were, were very large uh, or, uh, uh, generations that were heavily feted and talked about and treated as it, and a very solipsistic and very willing to essentially break with their inherited order in favor of their own things. Now, the boomers essentially inherited America at the peak mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. its influence mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, That's in what will happen when you destroy your international competitors right. and, and burn them to the ground. And you, they, you've got open markets everywhere. And they, and they rebelled against it. And by the way, I think that the fact that the baby boomers rebelled against their 50s suburban upbringing tells you something was wrong with that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, then you have the, I think that the millennials, who is sort of the epicenter of what you call woke culture today, mm -hmm. uh, are very much in the same way, that they're rejecting their inherited culture in the same way that the baby boomers did. However, uh, the baby, the, the millennials are different in that they are much poorer mm. and they're like not inheriting America. That's so so the, yeah. the boomers went through a, a negative period with the Vietnam War and with the stagflation of the 70s. Mm -hmm. But then really in the 1980s, when they hit prime adulthood, 30-something mm -hmm. as the TV show of the era put right, it, right, right. they really engaged in an incredible boom oh, yeah, uh, that dramatically there. enriched yeah. them from, say, 1980s on through you know, the, the two thousands. The millennials are much more likely, they didn't, you know, they were much more likely to be saddled with student loan debt yeah, and many right, other issues. Right. So they're not gonna find themselves quite in the position of the boomers. Um, but what I say is like a lot of conservative Christianity today is heavily influenced by, you know, baby boomers have been very dominant for a while. The dominant voices in conservative Christianity are baby boomers, mm -hmm. primarily of the early cohorts, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. say, call it 1945, 1952, 1955 birth dates. Piper people. Piper, yeah. Keller, right. you know, and it's just like that. Donald Trump, Bill Clinton, and George W. Bush were all born the same year, 1946. Interesting. Hillary was born in 48. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jim Wallace, the kind of the progressive, sure, right, born right. in 1948. Huh. So um, there's this there's this cohort of people that have really been dominant in our society for a very long time. And yeah. so what I see is a lot of conservative Christianity came out of essentially the more conservative element of that young cohort boomers. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about today's conservative Christianity, gotcha, not always. Gotcha. And they tend to, I think, idolize the 1950s household a little bit mm -hmm. while also being res trying to be a little bit responsive to the critique of you, you know, second wave feminism. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the key, I said all that to say this, one of the key weaknesses of the conservative vision of the Industrial Revolution 
is its impoverished view of the role of women in society. Mm-hmm. And that in pre-industrial society, you go back to say Proverbs 31, the Proverbs 31 sure. woman. Sure. She is at home while her husband is at the gates mm-hmm. representing the household, governing the city. The mm-hmm. household was the, the locus of community governance in that era. He yep. and the other elders of the city are judging the city. They're, 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 right. con- they're maintaining public affairs. She is at home. You know, but she's not vacuuming the floor. She's overseeing a vast household enterprise. Mm-hmm. Women had an incredibly valuable, productive role in society. Yep. And with the transition to industrial society, women lost their productive role yeah. in society. It was no longer a partnership between the man and the woman to create a household economy. Mm-hmm. It was now the husband was off in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. The wife was at home, essentially becoming a consumer and a, a child rearer. Yeah, kind and, of consumer-in-chief. Yes. And as uh, Ann Douglas read a great book, The uh, Feminization of American Culture, I think it was called, mm-hmm. uh, where she talked about, she calls it the disestablishment of women, which mm. paralleled the disestablishment of religion that happened yeah, in the same, yeah. the same period. Interesting. And that women actually lost many of their political rights mm-hmm. um, in that era. Women actually had more political rights in America prior to industrialization. They actually sort of lost some political rights. And so um, I think that what happened with like Betty Friedan, mm-hmm. who says the, the problem has no name, you have essentially a lot of very highly intelligent, yep. highly talented women yep. trapped in a lot of towns, single car families, yep. Yep. can't go anywhere, yep. Yep. you know, yeah, en- enjoying mama's mother's little helper, right. right, and all this stuff. And so I feel like th- right. this idea that there was a essentially impoverished view, now I write this, this this newsletter called The Masculinist, which is really a, a men's newsletter, but I would say the one thing, um, you know, that I, that I would just say is like wrong in a lot of conservatives is they, they, they have an, again, an underpowered view of women in the world because to them a woman is overwhelmingly just focused on raising kids, and that was always a part of it, Sure, but there's no productive role for women. Yeah, this is something you and I have talked about yes. before, and I think we're on the same page with, but I see you're trying to jump in here, Tom. What, what do you got? No, it's just, it's just interestingly the way in which that became an image type for what conservative Christians held as the biblical model. Yeah, right. Because right. that's that's one of the things I've been I've been saying for a long time is the way in which we're importing alternative conceptions of the human being, human relationships into what is being identified even in conservative Christianity. And this is what, through a long process, mm-hmm. has led to the leveling grounds that we're dealing with with now, right. and that was a that was a great uh, example of that. So what you right. had, what you had, is a shrinking of of roles and relationships going on with the industrial revolution, a thinning of the the family empire, if you will, right. and, and and creating a set of constraints. And then when that becomes viewed nostalgically or as yep. an ideal, right. and it gets read back into the Christian ideal, and so what you have is all of these academics attacking what they think is underwritten by Christianity because. Right. Christians went out and made those alignments. And this is what I mean by there was not a a careful um, discerning of what was going on in those situations. It was just a following suit and then an interpretation of their experience of that norm as if that is the genuine article. That's exactly right. Because part of it's like, I'm, let's say, I'm a conservative Christian. 
I tend to think, I tend to identify the correct stance as the stance that I experienced as my childhood yeah, in, say, 1980s Reagan America. Right. And so I'm reacting against what's going on today. And I'm like, no, we've, that's going the wrong direction. What was right was when I was a kid. But maybe when I was a kid wasn't right either. That's right. Yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. there See, were a lot of problems in that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I find it interesting. You know, anything after, for me, anything after 1648 is current events. It's journalism. Okay, so when I, when I take the long view of this, I find it really interesting that what we consider the traditional household, the traditional family, is a really very, very recent oh, yeah. right. uh, right. phenomenon. I mean, if you go back to any time from the 16th century earlier, arguably into the 17th century, all households were businesses. Right. They're either farms or they're craft households <laughs> right. or they're merchant households. And with the possible exception of the merchant household, in all cases, the women are integrally involved in the work of the household, yeah, uh, without uh, exception. Yeah, yeah. This, this is something that Nancy Piercy and I have talked about a little bit. Now, Nancy, you know, she's known for her book, Total Truth, and I mm -hmm. think one of the chapters in that book, she addresses this very thing we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Nancy and I uh, disagree about some things, but we're on the same page on, on this and a number of other things. And some of the young, sort of reformed women, these new spokeswomen who are developing followings on social media and stuff like that, they're not actually uh, demonstrating in my mind that they have any appreciation or any knowledge of this phenomenon at all. They're all sort of more or less reacting to what you just described, Aaron, as sort of a, it sort of, when they talk about the, the, the you know, the, the organization or the, the, the I, what's it, biblical manhood and womanhood? Yeah, yeah. I, the, the organization. Anyway, they're, they're, they're chafing uh, under the, uh, the yoke of this 1950s Victorian post, or sorry, I shouldn't say postal, but, but industrial vision of the Christian household as a consumer, a center of, cons of cons consumption. Right. And I think one of the things, can I just inject? I think sure. one of the things is the kind of today's conservatives, the, the babe with the boomer cons, as I right. call them, is I think their, even their own view maybe of their childhood is a little ahistorical because mm. they think of their, their parents and their, how their household was organized when they were the child in it. And I do think there was kind of an impoverished role for women kind of in the home and in society at that time. But one of the things that happened in that era when the stay-at-home mom was the norm is that women were, except when they had very young children, were generally the generators of all the social capital in the oh, community. Yeah, right. And so all of these historical societies <laughs> mm -hmm. that we see in all these things, they were largely founded by women. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe I, they were a tremendous influence of women mm -hmm. in that. Oh, they were doing all of the, all of the, essentially the, the community building was essentially junior league, was a product of women who did everything. They volunteered at the hospital. They raised money for this. They raised money for that. They were yeah. doing all these activities. Yeah. And so essentially, that's one reason that era did have very high social capital. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's one of the things that's missing from, right. I think, this conservative, today's conservative Christian view is they, they, even when they look at the 50s, they don't see the housewife as community builder. Right. They see the, wife, the, the housewife as purely a homemaker. Homemaker, it's a, a homemaker, child rearer, not someone who's actively involved 
you know, the husbands are doing the commercial stuff. They are building a community. And all of that stuff Robert Putnam talked about is the loss of social capital. A lot of that came into the fact that when women went into the workforce, the, the community building ceased to be done. Yeah, you think about something like the March of Dimes, which my yes. mother was involved with. A lot of women at, at that time, late, you know, late 50s, early 60s, uh, they were out in the neighborhoods organizing. You know, they were the ones who helped to raise the money for the for the libraries. They were the ones yeah, who helped to support the hospitals. And, and, and many of the high society women, when we think about high society women and we, we look at, say, you know, something like Downton Abbey or something like that, we, we can be blind to the fact that these women, our women are involved in this aspect of social life that is non-capital generating. So the men are out creating capital. It's indirectly capital generating, well, a, a cr critic might say. Yeah, but I agree with that. And that's still true today at the most elite levels Yeah, that's, I've heard you talked about that. Yeah, yes, I agree if, you, if you look about that, if you go look, go pull the program. If you ever go to an opera or a classical music performance, go to the um, program and look up the members of the women's board mm. and just... First off, look at who they're related to, and then look at how they list themselves. They often still today list themselves as Mrs. Husband, <laughs> Mrs. John Smith. And, no, and, I know exactly what and, you're and talking so about. And so it's like at elite levels of society, and this is one where I say the, the elite recognize the way that modern society harms human mm -hmm. flourishing in many ways, and that's how they exempt themselves from it. And, and Illich talked about this, but we see is okay, who is more likely to have backyard chickens today? A very poor person or a very upper middle class person? Uh, upper middle class, sure. Who is more likely to give birth at home today? A upper poor person class, yeah. or, or somebody from the upper middle yeah, class? Right. You know, you start going on down the line, the people who are, you know, when, we, when we become, it's like saying someone in the early uh, 19, let's say you're in 1910, and you recognize the harmful effects, perhaps, that cars are gonna have on society. So you're like, I'm not gonna get a car. Mm -hmm. Well, obviously, uh, at some point, it becomes impossible, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right, to live without a car. Right. And so, essentially, you can resist for a while. That's like you can resist getting on Facebook for a while. You can resist. <laughs> you don't have to have a smartphone today, but you will have to have one right, tomorrow. Right, right, right. But what ends up happening is what I call the flip. The flip, where the old poor person's option becomes the rich person's option. Yes, that's And so we, we saw the situation where, like, when digital watches came out, digital watches were the luxury option. Yeah, I remember when they were worth hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of dollars. Now, mechanical watches you have to wind <laughs> are the luxury option. That's right, right. Fountain right. pens are the luxury option. Yeah, I just bought a bunch for my kids at Christmas. <laughs> so what, what you see is, so what you, what you see is that is we have this flip in which the, the wealthiest members of society have the means and the education that allow themselves to exempt, to exempt themselves from many of the most destructive and worst aspects of our society. Well, while the, yeah, people yeah. Who are, the people who are below the upper middle class are stuck with the industrial <laughs> offerings. Well, they don't have the organic food from the farmer's market. Yeah, yeah. You know, they or, don't, they don't ha you know, they're really... But think, you know, think about screen time for kids. Yeah. Who, are, who are the people who are most likely to limit screen time for their kids? Silicon Valley executives. That's exactly right, because they know exactly what that can do to their kids. <laughs> right, and so they've got, like, they've got, it's just one person I know who's a very much of a... A politician I shan't name, who is a governor of a state, <laughs> and he um, was it in the Northeast? <laughs> no, it was, it was not. It was not. It was a Republican, and he was um, he was very much in the Tea Party mode. He's like, we yeah, need to, you know, yeah. we can't have, you know, we can't be spending money on gold-plated projects and all this stuff. 
And yet he lived in the state's wealthiest community. Yeah. One yeah. that was spending the most money on parks, the most money on that. And like, they've got a different deal for themselves than yeah. they have for you. Yeah. And that's yeah. what that's what really bothers me well, about know, a lot of it. You know, the, the, the guys at this table, we kind of all come out of like, you know, middle class, lower middle class, blue collar kind of environments. Now, my situation might be a little different because my, my, my folks were, my father was an academic, but then I ended up in a housing project. It's a long story. I don't need to get into it. But, but as we come out of this kind of thing, out of, this, out of these environments, I think that we can be more sort of attuned to the privilege. You know, there's a, there's a word. Like when I was at Harvard, you may have seen this at, at Oxford and other, at a, a, the people who came from the sort of these, you know, silver spoon in their mouth backgrounds. Mm -hmm went to the prep schools, also, you know, all this stuff. They came from extremely sort of conservative in terms of the patterns of life, households, non-working mothers, yeah. not women who didn't work outside the home, yeah. uh, fathers who were, you know, attentive and involved, but also... High level of expectations. They had a high level, and they had a high, yeah, high standards for their kids. They, they wouldn't put up with a, a lot. Uh, now, that resulted because they all know, you know, if they're gonna, if their kids are gonna be ready to, to carriers of that world. Yeah, they're gonna need to be trained. But in t when they support policies, you know, for the poor, or what, or for other people, it's a completely different rubric. Well, this is one of the things I th I've been very convinced of is that why they are at the forefront of the symbolic, abstract notions of empowerment for everyone else because it, it almost functions as a religious set of, of, of emblems oh, for everyone else. Yeah, yeah. So if you can be passionate about this very abstract world mm -hmm. of, of, you know, kind of, a of virtual power itself yeah. um, for its own sake, and you can basically run after that empowerment and, and lose everything else, like your family and, mm -hmm. your, and, and everything else, you, you actually are someone who will not therefore become one of the contenders or competitors for this it's world. Right. Okay, yeah. I, was, I was thinking you were going somewhere different, but I see what you're getting at. So in other words, the middle class person who wants to, who has aspirations to enter, of entering the elite, Yes. you know, they end up divesting themselves of the very things that the elite won't let go of. Yep, yep. And so they end up capping themselves. There's a kind of glass ceiling that they create for themselves because they've divested themselves of the very markers yep. that would have said, I'm genuinely a part of the elite. Yeah. Well, and it works the other way around, too. The elite are always busy trying to impose things well, on... That was, on the, that was the flip side of what I was yeah. saying. I mean, it was, it's always similar why, why even yeah. here in Connecticut yeah. on Prospect Avenue. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you can understand why the governor's mansion and everyone on that street want to pay higher things because it's the best security system That's right. they have. That's right. For the re for the rest, it's of like big businesses who yeah. who, who actually welcome more regulation because yeah. it undermines the ability of, of new businesses to compete. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the uh, most interesting things I read in a uh, a book uh, called Puritan Boston and Quaker Philadelphia by Digby Balzell. E. Digby Balzell. E. Digby Balzell was America's foremost historian uh, of elites. And uh, he was based at the University of Pennsylvania. He, he was the guy who popularized the term WASP okay, in okay. America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was one. He was from the elite to Philadelphia. And he yeah. looked at the leading 50 families of Philadelphia and Boston and contrasting their systems of elite. And one of the things he noticed in both of them is in none of those families was there ever a divorce. Interesting. 
that essentially divorce was essentially yes. uh, now that was in 79 I think the book came out so yeah, yeah. since then there's probably been some divorces but it was interesting how rare divorce was among the most elite and we're talking about the Cabots and the Lodges sure. and guys like that. Does he give a, does he analyze it? Does he think about why that's the case? Does he propose, a, to, does he make a proposal as to why that's I can't so? even begin to do justice to this guy's body of work, which is unbelievably phenomenal depth analysis of Let, let me, of let me throw something out and see what you think, because I've not read the book, and tell me if I'm yeah. on the right track. It has to do with breaking up, breaking up your, your common interest. You know, if, if, you, if you're holding something, in this case a name, uh, reputation, uh, not, to, you know, not to you know lose sight of just assets, you've got all these assets. If you were to break up that, you know, you're actually, you know, running the risk of, of leaving the elite, you know, yeah. you know there's well, this... Yeah, well, it's interesting, he said in both cities, the elite referred to themselves as clans. Mm. And they tended to marry each other. It's like, mm. you know, uh, it was like the quip that a wasp is someone whose first name is a last name. <laughs> yeah, they, you know, they were always the first name of his thing. The first name of one about. guy is the last name of his mother's family or something right, like right, that. Right. Uh, and he certainly says, I mean, the whole point is to contrast the elite of Philadelphia and Boston, which he thought accrued to Boston's advantage, even though he was a native Philadelphian and member of the elite of Philadelphia. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, I, I think it's really interesting when you talk about the values of the elite as shaping the values of society mm -hmm. um, in a lot of ways. Now, and today, like, and they were a social elite. I mean, that's one of the things to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. They were socially elite families. They were not necessarily the economic elite. Got you. You know, but one of his points was that the Philadelphia model triumphed in America, mm. uh, which he thought was to America's detriment. Help and, us understand the difference between the Brahmins of Boston and the Quakers of... Well, he sort of, uh, you know, he sort of, again, as the title implies, he says the theology shaped the reality and that the sense of calling mm -hmm. and of election mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. the uh, Puritans of Boston had mm -hmm. led the elite to view themselves as both entitled and yet required of God to lead and steward their community well. Mm -hmm. There was a big tra tradition of religious authority there, mm -hmm. what do you call class authority, mm -hmm. the idea that the, the members of these families in prominent positions were recognized by all segments of society mm -hmm. as the leaders of the community, that leading. they had legitimate leaders of community. Leading families. Yes. And so you would see for like generation after generation would produce governors and like mm -hmm. presidents of Harvard and people mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. But they also had this sense that they had to lead well. That's why in Massachusetts produced so many of America's leading statesmen, scientists, literary figures, yeah. etc. Well, you had that with the, the Edwards line. Yes, the, the Edwards, the Edwards out of the, Yeah, oh, yeah. Yes, out of Connecticut, I think. Yep. And yep. So you saw that, whereas in Philadelphia, and by the way, the, the, the um, Puritan uh, focus on theology created a very intellectualized class, mm -hmm. highly focused on higher education, erudition. Right. Mm -hmm. Quaker Philadelphia was a, uh, and I, I think we should say Massachusetts was a very intolerant community and this sure. very hom homogenous. Right. The Quakers were executed and run out of town and all these mm -hmm. things and uh, many negative things about Boston as well. Mm -hmm. Philadelphia being by Quakers it was a very uh, non-hierarchical mm -hmm. leveling society. Mm -hmm. 
Um, unlike the, the Boston families, which built up public institutions, like, say, Boston Latin School, mm -hmm. the Quakers produced essentially, like maybe on the Catholic model, the Catholic immigrant model, produced essentially sectarian institutions. Mm -hmm. We're going to create schools to care for our own kids, but we're not building up public education. Mm -hmm. So uh, Massachusetts was the first state, mm -hmm. the famous Old Deluder Satan Act that required public education in Massachusetts. Pennsylvania was something like the 28th state huh. to mandate you know, public right, attend school right, attendance. Right. And so essentially they, you know, this this Quaker doctrine of inner light privileged essentially yeah. self and practical education over higher learning, wasn't yeah, really yeah. interested in theology. Right, right. And essentially the elite withdrew to become essentially a purely social elite not involved in essentially community leadership. It's just, it's just, it became a plutocracy. Right. If there was like a plutocracy on the one hand with this kind of the classic wasp social elite. We stay in our little clubs, and yeah. not just not just Jews and Catholics and blacks can't join our clubs, but like anyone who has too much of a whiff of new money about them mm -hmm. is not mm -hmm. welcome. Mm -hmm. And multiple of the best art collections ever built in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania left the state hmm. because there's one was the Wiedner collection that this guy built that his daughter was like not invited to these assembly dances that were so so uh, big in Pennsylvania. When they finally invited her, they invited her as an out-of-town guest as opposed to like that. And as a result, he gave his art collection to the National Gallery in Washington. It became one of the, it's one of the key collections in the National Gallery today. And just this idea that they they became essentially socially exclusive. They withdrew. They didn't really engage but in the this community. Is the, the fascinating yeah. thing is that yeah. it's counterintuitive. We're talking about Quakers here. Yeah. You know, people who are known for their pacifism and you know, sort of their, their egalitarianism, and, and then then you get into right. this kind of weird sort of inversion of values. Yeah. You, you've got something. Well, if you're too if you're too egalitarian, let's just say you're you're, you're an egalitarian. Member of the elite. Yeah. Right, well, how right. do you how do you perceive yourself as your? Well, I'm just I have no obligations to society because we all have the same obligations. Well, isn't that what we see with Silicon Valley crowd? Yeah. You know, that, that's yeah. kind of they're a mindset. Yeah. So, so I think that the, it create and it also the Quakers are very very anti-intellectual. Yeah. And, um, and and so because it's, it's all intuitive. It's all yeah. Sort of, and, yeah. And, and so and you see this. Um, you know, my home state of Indiana had a very heavy Quaker. Influence. I think there are actually more Quakers in Indiana than there are in any other state today. Hmm. And uh, that was one of the stats from his book, which I found interesting. And Indiana has always been, you know, educationally weak, yeah. very skeptical of higher education. Interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. And we think about, you know, obviously the Brahmins, and we think about, you know, the, the Ivy League institutions. And when we think about the University of Pennsylvania, was that a Quaker institution? Was that founded by the Quakers? No. Um, it's not clear. There's a lot of myths around. I think there's this idea of like there was sort of this legend that Benjamin Franklin started. Oh, okay, it, but he right, didn't right. really. Well, of course but, he's a he's a he's a uh, an expatriate from Boston. No, he's actually a, a yeah. Puritan. Well, well, that was that was one of the big points was that like yeah. the great statesmen and the comp people of great accomplishment from Philadelphia were all from someplace else originally. <laughs> you know, it's kind of mm. kind of fun, kind of riff on this a little bit. I, yeah. you know, he's the exception that proves the rule, but he was not from there. <laughs> right. And uh, and unlike the people in Boston, he left no descendants. 
basically yeah, any distinction. Yeah. Distinction. Well, just, we, he had, uh, I know, at least one son who was actually a loyalist during the revolution. Yeah. Right. Governor of New Jersey, if I remember yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a lot of the, a lot of the, governor. now a lot of the Quakers ultimately converted to Episcopalians. Uh, That's an interesting shift. Well, 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 <laughs> well, one of the reasons was in the revolution, the Quakers were pacifists, so they couldn't fight in the revolution right. unless right. they left the Quaker Church. Right. Right. And you so know, that was I, one of the biggest ones. When I think yeah. about. By the way, um, just as a note, Indiana University is known academically for a couple of things. They're the best place in the world, arguably, to go to for Ural-Altaic languages. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm. What's the if, other? Uh, the other thing is they've actually got a really, really good music school. Yeah, they do. I thought you were going to say basketball. <laughs> well, <laughs> we're talking academics here. Their school, their school of Public and Environmental Affairs is ranked number one in the country mm, as well. Okay. But you're right. They have more, they teach more languages, I think, than any other university in the world, which came out of World War II. I think that was one of the ways that they partnered okay. with the uh, the federal government in World War II is that they would they would t train people in all the languages that they needed around the world. So they're yep. known for languages. Yeah, definitely. Is Especially one of the, the Central Asian. Yes. Yeah. yeah, we've got in my in my extended family on my wife's side that we have a kind of Brahmin you know, roots, and I remember actually being at the the house of the Earls, which was a Rhode Island family, and uh, he was the uh, chairman of the uh, NIV translating committee. So he became a uh, he was actually uh, recognized as, you know, by uh, Oxford as and you know, they got a, like a who's who of intellectuals in the world. So he was one of them. But I remember going to their house because it was it was just this weird sort of Brahmin experience, you know, kind of going into. This. I remember the first time I showed up at the house. You know, I'm working on a construction crew at the time. I was a framer, and I show up with his with the niece of, of the of the of the patriarch. Of that he comes out to meet us at the car, and I drive up in a truck, and he says to me, "Ah." Oh, you drive a truck. How interesting. <laughs> <laughs> right. well, but it, 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 I, I loved them. You know, he, he, they were great folks. But, but uh, there, was, there were just so many little things yeah. that let you know yeah. these are the things we, like the word distinguished. I never heard the word distinguished used so much mm. as when I was in their presence. Yeah. You know, they would talk about this distinguished this or that distinguished person or this, you know. But it was that Brahmin world. Yeah, one of the things I, I remember from my time in Oxford is you had a lot of senators' children. I mean, Chelsea right. Clinton was there when I was there. Um, but one of the things is you find is these people have a smell for each other. That's right, they, they do. They, and they, they know do. who isn't within their parameters. They've got a tremendous ability to discern the markers of social class. And it's they, unbelievable. It, it, they, they, they are, their antenna is to it. And, they and can have an IQ of, of 92. That's right. And they will know their what antenna. social class you belong to. Right. <laughs> well, there's somebody, there's somebody that's like that. My, my friend who's right. Jewish, uh, one of my Jewish friends, obviously one of my many Jewish friends in New York, <laughs> said, uh, right. says, you know, this, this is part of the problem that we have is like Jews always have this radar. We know who the other Jews are. Yeah, yeah. Right, we have this right. way. We know. So we assume that like all like the the, the non-Jews must also know who the Jews are, but they actually <laughs> don't. That's right. He's like, so we assume that they've like picked us out as the right. Jews in the crowd, but in fact they really have no clue. But this, I think, this applies <laughs> to the, the social elite, which is yeah. what we're talking about right now. They know each other. They can yeah. recognize yeah. each other. They know the And they the can markers. place you very quickly. And you, right. if you're in their presence, which I wasn't from their world, other than just intellectually, could could hang with them. Right. In terms of the academic world, um, is is you know when you're not of their group, you, and, and, yeah. and and you 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 sense it. And one of the interesting things, though, is like you said, that most of the time, um, intellectually, they're, they, they, I mean, they've, 
been prepped well. They've oftentimes gone to very good school, but they are very limited in their range mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. in terms of they're not sort of intellectuals for intellectual's sake. Mm -hmm. they, they have a mission. Um, but one of the interesting things is like the shift in, in um, the, the, the kind of what I would call sort of uh, in, in the academic world of, of kind of the, the elites who get the power positions and, and they kind of shape the agenda is this sort of continued inbreeding. And, this, yeah, this, this, and it's this, starting to show. Yes, yes. And what they did, and they they very clear, right. cl clear agendas. And and if you are again, if, if they can smell out when you're not. That's right. A part of it, and they so, train. And, and, and yeah. they can operate on two levels. They can yeah. have this sort of broad-minded, cosmopolitan, universal yep. benevolence shtick, yep. which is actually virtue signaling to say I'm a part of a particular very narrow yep. and sort of self-interested small circle of people who are out yeah. for themselves. It's, it's what uh, I think it was John Ellis had called um, sort of the, the, the kind of the the isolated um, insider and then the awkward outsider. So those are the two that are in tension, in tension with the with the general in general norms of the culture, in particular. And this awkwardness makes them 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 have this place that sort of isolates ivory towers and yet considers itself to be the, the, this place at which they. But they, in one case, you've got people with genuine power. That's right. Well, you that's know, the insiders. That's, that's well, right. Yeah. Well, one of the things that, you know, Pareto's got this concept of the circulation yeah, of the elites. Yeah, right. And one of Balls's points about uh, Philadelphia was that Philadelphia, I mean, uh, Philadelphia and Boston was that Boston actually was able to assimilate newcomers to the elite that demonstrated they belonged. Yeah. Philadelphia rapidly closed off a society. Again, if you were new money, you were out, it became very closed. Interesting. And so he said, look, you know, in Boston, which was this intolerant, originally this very intolerant, Mm -hmm. kind of theocratic state, mm -hmm. you know, people like Louis Brandeis and Felix Frankfurter who were sort of like, they weren't from there, they were Jewish, there were these outsiders, yet they were at home, they were recognized as people of talent. That's it. That were, that were brought into the fold because mm -hmm. they were recognized as people who had earned admission mm -hmm. to the, and if you can't, if you have, this is one of the problems with socially destabilized society, is if people who deserve to be the elite can't penetrate the barriers, mm -hmm. they become the people who foment Well, this is interesting, because when I was in Boston, I lived in Boston for a decade, I was invited by Jamie Bush, the nephew of the George W. Mm -hmm. to the Union Club, which is right on the Boston Common, right you know, mm -hmm. beneath uh, Beacon Hill. Mm -hmm. There was a yep. Bible study that had every Thursday, mm -hmm. and, I, and Jamie invited me to be a part of that. When I walked in, it was like walking into like you know Phineas Fogg and uh, Around the World in 180 Days. Right? <laughs> yeah. It was like right, walnut paneling everywhere. Yeah. And they're right on the table, right on the table when you walk in, was the Journal of the New England Genealogical Society. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think that was supposed to signal? Anyway, <laughs> but that, that world still exists in yeah. Boston. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think the question is, can, will, they, will they allow newcomers in? So you think about, for example, um, both of Mike Pence's daughters, I've read this article, he had like two daughters maybe, but they were, they were going to Yale Law School. And you know, Mike Pence is not a product of the elite. But now that he's been a vice president, sure. he made it. So, so there is there is some permeability. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. have to have some permeability to the system. But one of the challenges that we have today, um, and Julius Krein just did a great article uh, uh, in American Affairs on the America's real class war, mm. is our, our issue is we've had a, kind of essentially an overproduction of elites. Mm, mm. And... That that, he, uh, we need to unpack that. Well, he, he didn't necessarily put it that way. That's one thing I would say. But he's mm -hmm. like, look, the real class war isn't between the 1% and the 99%. Mm -hmm. 
the issue is not with the lower middle class and all their problems, which it is. The problem is it's the 0.1% versus the 9.9%. <laughs> and it's the people right, who right, are, right, right. And this, is, this, is the, this is the epicenter of essentially, it, it, you know, the white component of the woke world is people who have essentially pretty much elite or near elite educations. They live in global cities. Mm-hmm. They're making okay money mm-hmm. and yet they're falling further and further behind economically yeah, yeah. as rents go through the roof, many other things. Yeah. And this is this has really caused problems for them. Mm. And um, and and so this is this is creating a lot of the class tensions in our society are really among the people who are like, hey, I went to a great school. I went to live in New York or San Francisco. I can't do it. Right. I'm barely hanging on. Right. And that's where right. I think a lot of the millennials in that class have essentially um, internalized in, in in a sense it's a healthy reframing. Yeah. But like this idea of like, oh, you know, we don't need all this stuff. I'll have to live in a micro apartment and I'll ride yeah. a bicycle and I'll right, do all that stuff. It's because it's because it's all they can afford. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, but but they're able to package it in a way that it makes it seem cool. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so essentially Tiny I mean houses. essentially the, the share of <laughs> America's wealth right, right, owned right. by people thirty five and under well, the, you I, have to I, say it the same is to client like millennials at age 35 control three percent of America's wealth yeah so um, we're seeing is essentially this proletarianization right yeah, if which I mean, not yeah. present it in the word correctly right right uh, of right. the near called the near elite yeah and yeah. the Atlantic did a big piece on the 9.9 percent as well and I think this idea of the, the revolutions in society don't come as a result of per se populist uprising from the peasants if there's not a disaffected right. intellectual class well, to give voice to that. Let's think of who, who like killed, Marx, for example. You know, who killed Caesar? Right. It wasn't the mob. Right. Now let's think about that. Now you're a historian, mm-hmm. Glenn. When we think about like the that that point in in Rome's history, it, I, it kind of rem, reminds me of what Aaron just described. Yeah, I mean, you, you can look at any revolution you want to, and it's always led by, it's always led by elites, but not the elites at the very top of the elite, yeah, not the right. elite of the elite. Right, right. It, it, that's that's and, and maybe what you have going on there is you have, say, a Caesar m- making an alliance with the mob. Right, which, against, he, which he was emphatically doing. Right. Which threatened the power of the existing elite, so they went after him. But they were probably already being eclipsed. They were probably already in right. decline at that point. Yeah. And so what you've got is a situation where they just don't want to be absorbed into the mob themselves. They're trying to preserve at least the lives that they've known. Yeah, I think I think that's a fair way of reading at least the, the situation in Rome. It actually kind of brings to mind some parallels today, mm-hmm. but uh, I don't think I really want to go there right now. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, what, what you see, uh, look at the French Revolution. Okay. Uh, the French Revolution was led by the, um, I'll use the French words, the bourgeoisie right. Um, right. and the petite bourgeoisie. These, these are people who have wealth, yep. not a lot of wealth necessarily, but they've got their own homes, they've got their businesses and things like that. Some of them actually are quite wealthy, not at the level of the nobility. Those were the guys who led the revolution. Right. Against the existing elites that were entrenched and were determined to keep them out. Mm-hmm. If you go to Renaissance Italy, um, the great conflict in Renaissance Italy is between the old elites and the um, gente nuove. 
the, the new mad, which we would call the nouveau riche, the, the, the new money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that was the main social tension and, you know, that, right. that generated all kinds of revolutions across but, Italy. But it's interesting that, that, that this, uh, this sort of uh, either aspirant elite or eclipsed elite or, or lo mm -hmm. losing their elite status uh, in some way are appealing to something to justify their... Right. What they're doing. So in, with the nouveau or the new wealthy, the new rich, uh, they're saying that they're representing the people. Well, yeah, and, and you know, we, we have been successful. We've demonstrated our own talent. We haven't inherited it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not the, on the deeds of our ancestors that we, we claim the status. It's what we've done ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. we, can, we can show that we are useful to society, that we are productive, that we are successful. You guys, you're just living off your old titles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's one of the things James Davison Hunter talks about in terms of cultural change comes from people who are on the periphery of the yes. center. Right. They're, they're not at the, the top of the top, but they're around the top. I think we can use, uh, take, uh, you guys want another round or anything? I'm good. I'm done. Yeah, I think Got we're it. good. Yeah. Okay. So I, it, it's like this idea that you're, you're close, mm -hmm. but you're not at the, mm -hmm. you're very, the, right. the very, very, very yes. top. Right, right. And so. There, there's yeah. no revolution that I know of in history that was led by the masses. Yeah, yeah. By, by nature, the masses are leaderless. Right. There, right, right. You know, th th literally, there is not a single one that is actually an right. uprising of the people. Right, right. right. So somebody has At to... At least not none that yeah. succeed. What they, sure. what they get, like now, what, what they get is they get cultivated for something like this. Yeah. And that's right. what popular, that's why the competition in the popular is for, you, for, for, oh, that's right. the, for the right, I'll, I'll get this. Well, that's why, well, that's yeah. why our populist leader is a billionaire. Yeah, right. Who is like the child of a wealthy real estate yeah. developer <laughs> who lives in a, a, you know, who lives right. in a skyscraper on Fifth Avenue right next to Tempody's. But an alternative, <laughs> the ones that, the, the, the ones that, that contest him are the ones from the popularist kind of university movements and everything, yeah, right. which, yeah. which are competing for those minds to become quote unquote allies in this kind of well you know you, you, yeah. you look at it Bernie and Trump were flip sides of the same coin that's yeah. competing populism yes right. yeah. yeah and I think that you know you know what if you know we give some sort of assessment of what is behind sort of the Trump phenomenon we haven't got into, gotten into that you know much at all but uh, but I think that uh, he's presented himself, as Rod Dreher said, as kind of the patrician of the people. No, he, he is a patrician. He's a part of that class. And I was just reading today in CNN of all places mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, when it comes to, the, to, to what happened with Trump, is he's essentially betrayed the elite, and that's yes. why they're out to get him. Well, I think he is like, he's an example of what happens when you have a surplus production of elites. I think that one of the biggest issues with Trump that led to him becoming what he is is that he was not accepted socially yes. in the most elite circles of New York. That's right. That's right. And I think that he, he's got a huge chip on his shoulder. Remember that, uh, yeah. that famous White House correspondence dinner where they're making fun of him and he's just sitting there stone-faced in the crowd? <laughs> and there is that sense. And I see this. I that's see what, this. That's what, that was the genius of Nixon as well. Nixon right. had that chip on his shoulder. So I, I think there is this sense in which some of these guys, if you had simply admitted them to your club, what club did he get blackballed from? Mm -hmm. Is what I want to know. Yeah, right. And right. It, 
it's like there is a sense in which some of these things probably could have been diffused <laughs> had they simply admitted right. someone to the right, right clubs. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so I, I don't know, but I think right. there is yeah. this sense that oh, like Trump right. was always viewed by these guys. He's too gauche. He's yeah, that's right. that's that. right. But then he tapped into a whole segment of society. But he sort of owned it. He became he owned yeah. his yeah. own uh, his own thing. But I do I do think that's what I mean. Like th that a guy who was sort of a disaffected member of yeah, the elite. Right, right. And so the people who are going to be the class traitors, if you will, are people who probably did not receive what they thought was their due yeah, that's right. from yeah. that class. But, yeah. he, but he tapped into a whole segment of voters that have been left out of other institutional forms of elite. Right. The university, well, that's, that's the it. white you know, male yeah. being uh, basically set up as the, the symbol I, of every uh, every negative thing that the university sees as a positive. Yeah, uh, I think that's probably why at a deep level there are some people who trust Trump because they understand that they share a grievance. Yeah. You know, there's a right. kind of like, we, we, we have common enemies, we've both been slighted. Now, admittedly, you have golden, you know, right. uh, you know, silverware. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, in a golden toilet. But, but we all know that they hate your guts and they hate my guts too. That's right. There's a mutual <laughs> being hated that is uh, shared, I think, right. Um, right. in, in, in the, the passion that both right. have for... Right. I mean, it's not the only okay. issue, but well, I again, do think there is, a, there is that level. Sure, sure. If you're going to have that populist uprising, right. if you will, that's led by someone who's like a disaffected elite person, yeah. there do have to be some disaffected elements in your society for them to mobilize. Right, right. And I think that, that is what you, you have seen in that essentially the Republican Party, the people voting for the Republican Party, the, the voting base of the Republican Party, yeah, yeah. the Republican elites also don't like them. Well, that's what I mean. <laughs> you know, well, like, this is, but this is that. that now, this is now, we now we essentially right. know yeah. that yeah. essentially the movement conservatives and all of this, which was always a movement of people who are aspirationally elite. You know, William F. Buckley, the perfect right. example. Sure. Sure. God and man, yeah, he was yeah. a Yale man. Yeah. He lived in New York. He sort of gave, he, he was a Catholic who tried to give off as much of a wasp affect as he could. <laughs> the way that he talked. And oh, his, I know, he did. Yeah, all he of did. these things. <laughs> and so uh, anybody who became too déclassé, they're gone. You know, yeah. they never liked now, the, these Tea now, Party think about, type people. Remember his debates with Gore Vidal? Yeah. You know, now how much of that was, had nothing to do with the politics and how much of that was just the class <laughs> conflict and sort of the, right. you know, that kind of thing. Anyway, we, we've kind of gone far afield. We've got a point now where we need to right, kind of wrap things up. <laughs> I don't uh, remember where we started. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, that's one of the things that people love about our show. We never know where we're going to end up. Yeah, we and, don't either. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. Anyway, why don't we just kind of take an opportunity, you know, take a moment to sort of maybe say whatever we wanted to say and haven't had a chance to say. Do you have anything in your mind, uh, Glenn? I have absolutely nothing on my mind. It's finals week. <laughs> okay. How about you, Tom? Very similar. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm great at that. But yeah, it was great having you along. I uh, hope yeah, to, to yeah. return to this. Uh, I've learned a lot, and I think a lot of, uh, a lot of things we talk about regularly um, very much uh, illumine what you do, and no, you illumine what we do. So no, it's absolutely thank you, thank you. really wonderful having you along. Yeah, anything yeah. you want to wrap up with there? Well, I'll, uh, I'll uh, wrap this book that I was mentioning earlier to you that came out in June. It's called uh, Anointed with Oil, How Christianity and Crude Shaped America. Mm. And it's a really great uh, history mm. of the oil industry uh, in its intersection with 
yeah. uh, both conservative and liberal politics in its intersection with conservative and liberal religion. Mm. I think it's a very, very, very interesting Mm. and eye-opening book mm -hmm. that talks about how essentially every Christian of substance in the last century was backed by oil money. That's, a, that's fascinating, that and, is, and that's amazing. And, uh, and one of the things that you see is, one of the lessons, sort of like the populist uprising, I think one of the things that we see is very little uh, is inorganic. Mm. And everybody who got big had somebody big behind the scenes. Yeah, that's and right. uh, they that, mentioned, um, I'll give you one little tidbit from this book. Uh, uh, just to whet your appetite, is that Billy Graham uh, strategically made, I think it was First Baptist Church in Dallas, mm -hmm. his Wells. home church. Mm -hmm. Chris Wells Church. Whatever, big, big whatever it was. Yeah. But basically mm -hmm. it was all yeah. the big oil money guys mm -hmm. in Dallas attended this church. Sid Richardson, Murchison, okay. and those guys. Okay. And so he essentially made a very strategic alliance. Francis Schaefer, all of them had oil money. Oil money paid to... Uh, Publish the fundamentals. Yeah. Uh, we need things. to get some of that oil money. Yeah. That's what I say. Why, oh, why doesn't anybody want me to sell out? <laughs> Interesting little little fact that right, we, right. we can wrap up. But um, one of the big pained movements of Paige Patterson, the former president of Southern yeah, Baptist yeah. Convention and president of Southeastern Baptist, was that he did not get what he considered the promised pulpit of First Baptist. Uh. And of course, he, he kind of rewired the conservative uprising to take over the institutions yeah, right, of right. conservatism. And the, and the There's always some other story behind the scenes. There is. So we have yeah. a lot to. So, 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 so much of it is it's very, very, very fascinating to, to talk about. It's a history of the oil industry. Uh, it's long, uh, but it's shorter than the prize. And um, it's uh, and, and also uh, a lot of fascinating things about. They always say, follow the money. Yeah. Where did the money behind yeah. Christianity, all these Christians whose names you know come yeah. from, uh, and very interesting. Yeah, and I think that, that that's a good place to, 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 to bring it to a close. You know, I think that oftentimes uh, there are people out there who are good, you know, they, they're, they're, they're good people. They're, they have, uh, you know, warm hearts, and they, they love the Lord, and they see, you know, the the promotional material and they and they and they don't think about you know kind of what's going on behind the scenes and they don't think about well why why should I listen to this person that I don't really know on a personal level and consider his opinions more valid than the man in the pulpit that I know every week that I see every week and know his family and know that he's you know solid and has integrity uh, why well you know there's something something worth reflecting on here because I think a little right. bit of that is, is what we see going on with the oil money book that you just described. Right. Anyway. Yeah. Who's the money behind all these people? Because everybody whose name you know mm -hmm. has got some very rich people behind them. Yeah. Uh, how else could they afford what right. they do? Right. right. Anyway, well, thank you for listening to the Theology Podcast. Uh, podcasting to you today from uh, Modern A Pizza in uh, New Haven, Connecticut, right down the street from Yale University. And as I look out the window, I see that the paddy wagon is waiting, waiting for us, and the politi political correct uh, crowd is about to enforce its and standards. And Christianity Today is out there. <laughs> and and, and I want to I, I thank Chris for not mentioning Colt Firearms, so we didn't get arrested. <laughs> yeah. so we're, we're not up in, in, in uh, Hartford, so we can't do that. Anyway, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.